Everything's falling into place I'm right where I should be We grow out of this world in exactly the same way that the apples grow on the apple tree. The tides of life are led me here. What's the meaning of the universe? What's the meaning of a flea? It's just there. That's it. And your own meaning is that you're there. And that's why I'm not scared. The destiny of the species is unfolding with the logic of a dream. I know the answer will appear, please. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to part two of our interview with Dr. Rob Colbert. If you missed part one, check that out because this episode is in response to a lot of the ideas put forth in the last episode. As a refresher, Dr. Rob Colbert is a practicing therapist and a co-investigator on the MAPS MDMA-assisted therapy study, using MDMA, also known as ecstasy, in the treatment of patients with PTSD. MDMA was recently granted a breakthrough therapy designation by the FDA in complete contradiction of its federal classification as a Schedule I drug, which defines MDMA, along with psilocybin and cannabis, as a dangerous drug with potentially severe psychological or physical dependence that has no known medical use. It's worth noting that psilocybin also received a breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA in 2019. So here we are, 50 years after the Controlled Substances Act waged a war on drugs, finally coming to terms with the failure of a war that was against our own citizens, against scientific inquiry, and maybe even against human nature. And the fallout from this war on drugs has shattered the lives of many people, both in marginalized communities targeted for their race and in the wider social landscape, perpetuating the myths of dangerous drug users. Against this backdrop, we find Rob Colbert and his colleagues fighting to change deeply ingrained cultural perspectives, asking us to think critically about prohibition and its effects on both users and the wellness of our culture as a whole. After the first episode with Rob, I received great feedback from listeners, some of whom were challenged by the topics and the suggestion that we should be more open and supportive of drug users in our communities. Maybe the problem does belong underground where we don't have to look at it. Well, today we dig into some of those devil's advocate questions and gain a wider view of this Prohibition-era landscape. For me, this was an opportunity to take my safe little box of concepts which was blown up in the last episode, an attempt to put it back together in a more useful way. And I was delighted to find my thinking clarify around some of these uncomfortable topics. So sit back, open your ears, your mind, and your heart as we go further down the rabbit hole with our guest, Dr. Rob Colbert. Enjoy. As I got feedback from people once uh, the first part went live, what I heard from um, listeners, a lot of loving the conversation, loving the open dialogue. And then there were a few that I talked to that were really challenged by it in interesting ways. Uh, I think the, the big one that stood out uh, for people is this loss of a, of a um, hard and fast qualification system of like, this is a good drug and this is a bad drug. 
means that things like heroin can be talked about openly when most people, their experience, everything that they know about that previously is grounded in challenges myth. for people. Myth. Okay. <laughs> well, it is. It's been, it's like, it is myth. We are fed stories and we've been fed these stories since the, the, the um, prohibition started coming on, right? And it, and it is all about framing. It was about framing the drug around uh, predatory uh, black communities or predatory Latinx communities, right? Uh, uh, with cannabis or heroin with the black community, right? Like, like, uh, it was it made up around these mythologies of dangerous people, right? Like um, <clears throat> with, with heroin, actually. So I just have to encourage everybody out there um, Drug use for grown-ups. I got the title wrong, but drug use for grown-ups is um, Dr. Carl Hart's new book. Uh, you're going to want to crack into that. You're also going to want to crack into uh, Moral Defense of Recreational Drug Use by Robert Lovering. Uh, it, it breaks apart a lot of these arguments. It's for critical thinkers, but it, it helps delineate that part of how the public discourse got into a situation of polarizing the dialogue. And then demonizing just the the targets that it wanted, right? Because um, like when people are like, "Oh, well, how can you talk about openly about uh, using heroin?" Well, we live in a, a a culture and a society that doctors openly prescribe opiates, right? The truth about our body is that we have opioid receptors, right? So the the intricate binding of those two things, like it's not a bad drug. Our body is actually evolved in ways to receive certain receptors from these plants, right? Cannabinoid, the endocannabinoid system, right? So to then all of a sudden say, oh, cannabis is a dangerous drug. Well, it's not dangerous. Actually, our bodies respond to it in ways that are just like really tuned in, right? So it's our, our society that's broken away and kind of made up these mythologies that then generate bad drug myths. Yeah, I think that's, and that's how I, um, how I took it as well. And the ability to suspend that judgment long enough to see a bigger picture and see the hypocrisy, I think leads to a, a wider um, understanding of just what's around us and how it affects people. Uh, I know that in some of the people I talked to, they were bringing up firsthand stories of people that uh, had drug use problems and i think that can't be denied that people maybe it's because it's so marginalized because they you know get the label right off the bat that you're bad so they think they're bad they act in bad ways but if someone has a loved one who got into heroin and is stealing money to pay for it and acting in bad ways antisocial ways you know how does this open mindset change how we address those people who do have struggles? Well, in a large way, if uh, the prohibition of the substance generates those, a lot of those ills. Gino, Gino has the, the most readily available access to methamphetamines, opiates, um, uh, cannabis. Like, just guess who has the most readily access? Rich people. 
right? Like if you have money, you can go to your doctor and ask and get a prescription for methamphetamines. You can also go and ask for prescriptions for opiates, right? And so you have access. What you have access to are these substances that are not adulterated, right? So you don't, you don't face the same ills who, that someone who doesn't have that same access does, right? So if you're poor, uh, you don't have access, like you're already seen as like uh, being at risk of being a, a drug abuser because you're poor, right? So then you try and talk to your doctor about getting some opiates for pain or some uh, methamphetamine to work harder, whatever. You're already packaged as close to the line of being a drug abuser, right? So um, it's wild then that, yeah, people uh, want to change their consciousness. They want to get rid of the pain. They want to focus. You know, So they're going to seek out substances that deliver that. But because of prohibition, they don't have access to good stuff. So then they go out and they, they end up in these cycles where they have to chase down access to the things that get them high. And in that chase, because it's prohibited, yeah, you can't just go to Walmart and stock up. You have to find a dealer. And then that dealer has, you know, it's, a, it's got a price. And so if you've run out of cash, you come to stealing, right? So it's like if the drug wasn't prohibited in the first place, Right. If people had reliable access to these things like Switzerland is a wonderful example of this. Right. So clean heroin use sites. Right. Uh, their their um, focus on the community problem of heroin use was that the intravenous drug use was dangerous because it spreads disease and that the prohibition was leading towards adulterated drugs. And so they were like, well, we want to take care of our people. We don't care if they want to get high on heroin, but let's make sure that they can go to a doctor, get clean heroin, clean needles and then see what happens. And so you do, you have this group of users. And so there was kind of a twofold thing. First, the users that were hooked on heroin, they got to go and they get their drug, they get shot up, and then they go do their day, right? Take their kids to work, you know, school, do the, do the whole thing, right? So they don't have to spend their time figuring out access. The other thing is, is that the younger generation also saw this and they were like, oh, well, so, I know what heroin is, but there's not any mythology around it. I just know that it's this drug that does this thing. And if I want to do it, I can go to a doctor and get it. But maybe I just don't want to, right? And so you actually saw lower instances of use with the, with the removal of prohibition. And so you see the, the folks who are going to go out seeking access, getting healthier benefits from having it not prohibited, and then a younger population who's better educated about it and is like, eh, maybe it's not for me. So... The, the prohibition there is actually what generated a lot of the harms because I, what we've seen through decades, generation of uh, drug prohibition is that the drug users didn't go away, right? We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't solve it and be like, oh, good, hey, we scheduled these and everybody just stopped using them. That didn't happen at all, right? We actually have seen the problem compound. And so if we actually want to think critically on this, we need to investigate those roots. And so what's wild is if you are a big advocate for some of these myths, right? Like if you want to advocate for like good drug versus bad drug, you actually are buying into the racist underpinnings of this. And so I really want people to think about that, right? Like the, the origins of drug prohibition came from racist attitudes and beliefs and was, were, were intentionally funneled to prohibit race race relations right like demonizing black folks for using heroin because they were scary was some of the first instances uh, you know angling it so that that was that was a, a a group that they the government could put its thumb on 
once it figured out that this was, you know, beneficial to the system, like the system just kept compounding it in different directions, right? And so as it played out, it just keeps following that thread of racism. And so it's actually, if you, if you believe in drug prohibition, you believe in racism. <laughs> anyway, I, I know I'm simplifying it, but really this critical thinking piece, we really have to bust it out and uh, start looking at these things, right? What does access mean? And mm. would that be better than prohibiting? Yeah. Um, so interestingly, one of the things that came up in my uh, different dialogues with people about this topic is that someone brought up a a parallel argument or counter argument saying that, look, you guys were talking about um, having open dialogue and removing prohibitions and, and integrating these things into our culture. Yet we've done that with alcohol you can talk openly about it. You know, it's it's part of the culture. It's part of that dialogue. Yet people are widely abusing alcohol. It, it leads to all kinds of social problems and deaths from drunk drivers. And the the openness and embracing of that substance has made it uh, a, a real cultural problem. There's There's very few people that have not had their lives touched by alcohol in some way. And so the um, the counter argument was, if you make these other substances more widely available, what's to stop that openness leading to more use? You're right. Alcohol, there are a lot of ills associated with it. What's interesting about that drug is the effects that it has on people, right, uh, lead towards certain types of behavior. And so... Uh, you know, what was it, the 16th Amendment or the 23rd? I, I'm forgetting now which amendment it was that prohibited alcohol. But they had to amend that sucker. Why? Because prohibiting it, like, generated a ton of crime, right? Like, that, that was, that was a, a, a crazy time because the underground bootleggers were, were just all of this. But so people's response to prohibiting alcohol was to lash out, become violent, seek out your drug any way you could, right? So uh, the response to that was to repeal it and say, okay, no, 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 let's, let's, let's actually regulate it some way and whatever, right? Um, what's wild is there, one of the ideas that I have is the reason that didn't happen with cannabis is because cannabis's effects are different, right? Like, if you don't get your cannabis, you're not like, ah, let's tear it all down, right? And so we didn't have that response. But you had that response from alcohol, so they got it, right? It's the same thing with, like, opiates and stuff, right? The, the, the drug effects kind of go a different direction. So um, it doesn't create that, like, violent outburst to, to claim it back. And, like, are we going to get rid of social ills or crime by uh, removing drug prohibition? No, no. Uh, those things come from things that aren't drugs, right? They come from bad decisions, bad choices in life more than the decisions people make while they're altered, right? Uh, so one of the reasons of removing prohibition was that uh, alcohol being made was not regulated and it, it was extremely toxic, right? So in regulating that, it was removing some of those harms. So it's the same thing that we're talking about with drugs now. Like, let's get rid of the underground networks that are adultering drugs, right? Like fentanyl and cocaine and heroin these days is terrible. Why do cartels get away with doing that? Well, because there's no other way for people to get access. So the only drugs they can access in that form are kind of being pumped in through these shady, you know, organizations and stuff, right? 
And so they're trying to maximize their profit, and they don't give two shits about the people doing the drug. So if we remove that, we would actually remove the harms associated with it. So within that, it's wiser to do that and remove the violence and the harms associated with it, even though, yeah, no, we may still be have people overdosing, right? You, you, you will have people still overdosing. But I guarantee that we reduce those rates when people actually have a consistent drug. Typically, an overdose takes place because of the, the, the quality of the drug changes from batch to batch, drug dealer to drug dealer, right? If that wasn't there, you're going to reduce the number of overdose deaths. So that's good, right? Does it get rid of all of them? No, probably not. Yeah. Um, and in my own thinking about this, one of the things that jumped out at me was that with the um, removal of prohibition for cannabis, one of the things that, uh, for example, my wife, who is a high school teacher, has noticed is that the kids are less interested in cannabis because it's it's there. It's part of the, the culture. Mom and dad use it. And so they they still have what we were talking about earlier. You know, they still have those streaks of anti-authority. Um, but they're no longer going into that as a uh, as a symbol of that rebellion. Now the kids just see it as another thing that's available to them when they want to do it or when they get older, and it's not the kind of demonized black hole that I think it, it seemed to be when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, we focus on the stories of, like, the heroin user stealing from mom and dad. Um the uh, the meth addict uh, driving and road raging and, and endangering people on the roadway, or um, you know the heroin addict nodding out on the public transit, right? Like we, we we kind of focus on these ills that we see the visual piece. When we actually talk about those statistically, though, it's a very small number of folks that see that side of drug use. Right. And so a lot of those ills that do come from that are from the prohibition. Those are the, the, the stories that we focus on to then help perpetuate these myths that drugs are dangerous. What we leave out is the large percentage, like the, the actual majority of folks who use drugs, alcohol, all these things and don't have any trouble. It, it's, it's like automobiles, for instance. Right. They're they're a wonder of the modern age. They allow us to travel, you know, the coast to coast. They get us to work. I mean, they, they make all of these things possible. Right. And daily, three thousand one hundred one hundred and twenty six people die by vehicle. Wiped off the planet. They're dangerous. That's uh, I, I, what are the statistics is uh, one and a quarter million people a year die in car accidents right? That's terrible. That's moms, dads just wiped away from their family, grandparents gone, grandkiddos to never reach their fifth birthday, right? Like this is tragic. And we are not talking about like, well, let's have a war on automobiles. Let's take them down. Let's get rid of all of them. We need to, we need to make all of them illegal because they kill some people, hmm. right? That it, It's not it, that easy, right? So um, why we get uh, into this piece with drugs of just like, oh, no, let's go that way. Let's just outlaw all of them or put them just to, so we can make sure some people are safe. We're never going to make it all safe, right? Like that wasn't the goal in this either. But looking at it from an anthropological perspective, we actually have a longer track record of society being um, prosperous, fruitful, um, uh, surviving uh, without drug prohibition than we do a track record of 
drug prohibition being within us, right? So the, the small time frame that we have of drug prohibition uh, related to the rest of you know, our, our, our recorded history is this very small sliver down here, right? And so drug prohibition is actually an experiment at that level. And what's wild if we actually consider that, it, 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 is, it was an experiment when it started. What if we prohibit this drug to protect these people? Let's, you know, even if we remove the racist underpinnings of that, uh, th it was an experiment. They didn't know what would happen. But what we saw is, you know, <clears throat> increases in violence, right? Increases of, of, of drug abuse, like all, all these things got worse, not better. And so at some point, we kind of have to start to recognize this, that this social experiment failed. One of my favorite internet memes is um, one of the, the Muppets uh, the news anchors saying, oh, and we'd like to congratulate drugs for winning the war on drugs. <laughs> and, and it's like this truth that, yeah, no, we created a war on something that we could never win. And so that experiment, could we, couldn't we war this out of existence? No. Turns out, no, we can't. And we have to actually confront that that didn't work. And we have to try something different. We, it's like we, we keep pounding our head against this prohibition wall. And it's, it's just ridiculous that the outputs, we're still like, oh, we still haven't gotten there. Oh, uh, we got heroin addicts. Oh, and they're hooked on heroin. We can't get them off. Well, let's get them something else. Let's get them hooked on Suboxone. So then they're on Suboxone for, you know, like it's just this ridiculous thing. Instead of saying like, oh, okay, what happens if we just created access for people hmm. and uh, actually created a culture, like a culture of use to where just like you said, young kids are aware of cannabis. Um, then they don't feel like they have to rebel. And the reason is, is because what we actually rebel against is the contradiction. We rebel against the lie that we were told. You tell kids, oh, you smoke pot, you'll go crazy. And they're like, well, no, my friend James smoked pot last week. He didn't go crazy. He actually giggled a lot and we had some Cheetos. So that, that rebelling comes as like, I think I'm being lied to. I'm going to confront this contradiction, this lie and then it comes out as like, oh, and I'm going to go seek out as much pot as I can and do the thing. I mean, and so it comes out sideways, right? Mm -hmm. If we actually had a culture of use around substances, it was like, yeah, kid, there is a whole range of substances that we can show you. And we actually have them in drug classifications. We've got stimulants, depressants, antipsychotics. I mean, we, we, we could go there. But actually giving kiddos just kind of the lay of the land of like, oh, your, your consciousness can be altered by substances, and this is kind of the range. But the more they're educated, the, the less they feel I have to rebel, right? Then they're kind of like, oh, oh, okay, I feel like I was lied to. You told me LSD would do this thing. Is it dangerous? No, not necessarily, but it could be if I do it in the wrong situation. Okay, well, I just won't do it until I'm in the right situation, right? But so I think that that is like the angle um, that we need to consider, just that this uh, this experiment of prohibition failed. And mm -hmm. science would say that we need to try a different experiment with this. And there are places on the planet that have, right? Like Portugal, uh, d decriminalizing uh, all drugs, doing huh. great with it, right? So, like, we have a growing body of evidence. But what's wild is we, the, it, it's, it's, it's combating the public myth, right? Because, like, doctors, like Carl Hart, like, all, all, all like, we have research that we can read and so we get kind of a full spectrum of this stuff and we're like oh okay it's not necessarily the drug that's harmful it's how when and where it's used and what kind of circumstances or whatever so uh we can see that but trying to break those myths to the general public is, is uh, just such an uphill battle yeah
when someone's driving to a car, we see that as a need in our modern world to get from point A to point B. With the drug use, I think a lot of people still are challenged by the notion that these other states of awareness are there and they're accessible and it is okay to go there. And I think that is, you know, kind of the Puritan values still coming through. But with that um, background in anthropology, I I love that concept that this was a war that we could never win because this is like integrated with what humans are. Why do you think we seek out these substances? Why do you see that as being so ingrained in what human beings are? Well, um, mostly because of how we evolved on this planet, right? Like, uh, as, as mammals, we have to consume things from our environment to sustain our being. We don't generate it on our own. We can't generate any of that energy ourselves. So we have to take substances from the environment to sustain ourselves. And so uh, all of the different effects and stuff like that, like, if you really, you know, took out the modern lens on it, wouldn't be a lot of judgment placed on it right? Did the mushrooms they ate, did they sustain life or kill life? Well, if they sustained life, they ate more of them. If they killed life, they ate less of them, right? Um, yeah, humans, I, like, I, I'm very careful to when I talk about, like, human nature, because, like, I, I think a lot of the things that get packaged in that are very modern concepts of what mm. we uh, think of that as. But to me, something that is very much a part of human nature is using substances from our environment to alter our consciousness, right? Like, it's just like I said, uh, you know, getting hangry. If I don't eat, my attitude is totally different. And so I seek out a substance to change my consciousness. It's just a very baseline thing. And so I think that that, that, that sense of human nature has just been with us, right? And, and it's not like, and uh, mammal or uh, us humans as mammals are special in this, right? We mm. see ants that get high on uh, fermented alcohol off of, of grapes and stuff, seeking it out, right? So there's other evidence that these other animals are also altering their consciousness as best as we can guess. But for the for the most part, for something we can't you know localize anyway, it's it's wild that we get so up in arms when people alter it. Um, you know, the other thing I like to point out about you know, especially related to psychedelics, some of their early interest was because of how they mimicked psychosis that existed just in humans' biology, right? And so the idea from LSD was like, oh, maybe we can get more information about these other mind states that are created without drugs, right? Um, At the time, they were exploring schizophrenia, and, like, they were wondering what could we learn about this thing that is caused just by the human biology, so when we talk about like, oh, these altered states of consciousness are so wild, like why, why, why would we give humans access to these drugs that can do it? Well, the truth is humans don't need those drugs to access it. I have actually some of the more severe altered states of consciousness that I've helped assist people through uh, uh, were not generated by substances, right? Like it was their own biochemistry generating the delusions, hallucinations, all the different things that they were experiencing. And that's wild right? Like they didn't, they weren't on LSD and they were talking to things that weren't there or, you know, like these kind of experiences. And it was all manifested just through our chemistry, just the body. And so the, the, the drug altering the consciousness is just one fascinating thing. 
that our bodies do it on their own, really, that's the surprising part. Yeah. And so why, why do humans pursue it? I think because it's just part of our own natural experience, right? So how do you, how do you make sense of that, uh, the crazy hallucinations you had during a fever? Well, maybe it is like returning to the hallucinations on mushrooms. I don't know. But it's, uh, you know, generating these kind of mind states isn't the ill that we think it is, right? It's actually just kind of par for the course. Yeah, that's that's a cool line of thinking um, because it, I think it's come to light that, you know, uh, potentially the pineal gland can synthesize uh, DMT in our own brains. And so it might be linked to what we call near-death experiences or these moments of awareness. I, I've heard uh, talks of people in war, you know, with bombs going off all around them, and they, they kind of have this all of a sudden overwhelming altered state. And so that being part of the uh, spectrum of human potential, it seems like when people did, you know, they're foraging for food, they eat a, a mushroom that's growing on some cattle dung, and all of a sudden they are experiencing not this completely novel uh, experience, but they're they're having a human experience, and now we've got this kind of shortcut into it. Like this is how people feel when they're dying or when they're under stress or whatever. Now here we we can we can sample that from a perspective where we're not dying and try and make sense of it. It it strikes me that the use of these substances, and maybe this is my modern mind projecting backwards, but they have been encapsulated. <laughs> in for what is you know lack of a better term like a spiritual regard that it was in a lot of these cultures you know the shaman or the priest uh there's evidence that a lot of you know mainstream religions actually had its its roots in some of these uh cults and and people that used substances to alter their consciousness so there is that potential for spiritual awakening and that to me like takes it, it elevates it out of the dirt, out of the dung, out of just the foraging for food and saying, hey, this is something really unique and special. Would you agree with that? I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's like, you know, I, I don't want to get too far into it, but uh, it's fun. Uh, actually, Eric Osborne, uh, who was with Myco Meditations, the folks doing retreats down in Jamaica, he's like a super expert on some of this, the fungi piece, but um, it's fun to connect with him about some of the, the histories of, of these things. Um, we were down in Jamaica in 2018 hanging with him, and I knew some of the, 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 the past mythologies. Like, for instance, um, a shaman in Siberia would seek out reindeer who had eaten Amanita muscaria, and... Uh, actually seek out their urine because the, the reindeer would eat the mushroom, their body, their liver would actually cross out some of the toxic uh, pieces and they would consume the urine and actually get the psilocin, psilocybin from it. And so these shaman uh, then talked about the magical reindeer, right? And, and, and so these different things. And so Santa Claus comes from this archetype of that shaman delivering the magic to the people, right? And the, the presence under the tree, well, those are Amanita, right? That's the mushroom right there under it. And so that's what they were talking about. And so it's, it's, it's fun that the, uh, in the formations of the Christian church, 
they had to encapsulate these pagan traditions in order to get the pagans to go along with it, right? Um, but so then we've just lost some of that history of like, oh, well, the magical reindeer, they're talking about a magical because of mushrooms, you know? And so um, the only, yeah, psilocybin's found on every continent on the planet except Antarctica. So we can only guess that humans were exposed to it as long as we can remember. I mean, we're yeah. foragers. It had, had to be eaten mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a great um, a great video on YouTube that was produced by a, a guy named Jan Irvin, who's written a bunch of books on uh, astrotheology and shamanism, and really shows where the roots of a lot of these modern, um, widely embraced holidays come from, with the the mushrooms and the yeah the shaman driving his team of reindeer hut to hut in Siberia, and you know giving people these mushrooms that they put in socks and hang over their fire to dry them. And like all of it is kind of there in its DNA, but it's, yeah, it, it, it has these roots in um, ritualistic inebriation. And so mm -hmm. I, I, you know, from what we talked about last time, it's pretty clear to me that your life and career went on a trajectory after you've had some of these experiences how, how yeah. maybe maybe explain to me how those experiences and others helped you form you know who you are and what you believe well, I'm, I'm just a rebellious youth at 40 i, I can finally comfortably say that <laughs> but that that's what it was just like catching the contradiction and just say like wait that's that's not right why would we why would we lie to young people about this you know, and um, so yeah, I, I think that I just really stuck with that and and wanted to stand up for the the younger kid, you know, and just saying like, hey, kids, they're yelling to you about pot in my day, right? Like when I was in high school, reefer madness was you know like still a video that they would refer to, right? Uh, the dare. Uh, the D.A.R.E. program going through schools would still show clips of that, you know, somebody smoking a joint and freaking out and jumping out a window. And, and, and so that was the scare tactics being used. So, yeah, it was like taking on that, that, that charge of being the rebel and just being like, oh, no, hey, everybody, they're lying to us right now. And I know that a lot of the kids in the class at the time were just like, oh, yeah, drugs are bad, drugs are bad. And some of them may, may still think that. But I wanted to remove those uh, that myth, that mirage. So so, I mean, there's lots of ways to fight, uh, fight the man, fight the system. I think drugs are just one of the ways that kids are kind of put in boxes. But do you feel that that, that realm of experience is important for young people to have access to? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't see any contradiction in giving kids drugs. Uh, we already do, right? Like... An MD, physician, psychiatrist could prescribe methamphetamines to kiddo five years old. And they do, right? Like you've got kids in kindergarten and stuff uh, being um, prescribed chemical behavior control, right? Like that's all it is. They're trying to control behavior through the use of chemicals, right? So if the system can impose behavior management by chemicals, why can't the individual also accept that same liberty and say, oh, I want to control my behavior through the use of chemicals, right? Like, why don't we, why don't, why aren't we trusted with that? Right. And so, um, not, not to say that, you know, uh, we should just let anybody take and give whatever drugs they want to their kiddos, 
but it's just wild that we will place that authority outside of ourselves, right? And and really, like, who is the best judge of 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 what a kid should or shouldn't have? Well, their parent, right? Like, I remember the first time my uncle, uh, you know, sharing wine with me. That was an exchange that happened, but was in a, a context in a in a way that I explored alcohol for the first time together, right? It was a Thanksgiving. We went and played some football, and I was a little woozy, and was like, "Wow, this is what drunk is," right? But like. Who's to say that was a bad thing? It wasn't, right? That was something that we shared at a family event. And that was, you know, mm. just the thing. Because we don't have rites of passage like that with other substances and other things, kiddos end up taking it on themselves. And so their rite of passage ends up happening with their four friends behind the shed smoking pot for the first time. Instead of having adults kind of share openly like, oh, yeah, no, cannabis is this thing that we use in exchange. And when you get here, we'll do it together. Right. Like that would be a different experience than trying to figure it out. Right. And so uh, I think returning to some of those things is, is what our culture needs. That's a, a lot of why I feel people feel like uh, they've been, you know, in a sense, like put out to pasture. Right. We just don't we're not given a lot of guidance. We're kind of like uh, force fed this education, but then no real exploration of what that means for who we are as individuals or how to discover our own path in that. And that, to me, was part of my path was drug use and exploring what that path could be, right? So taking MDMA for the first time and just being like, holy crap, they don't use this for therapy? That absolutely transformed my path into going to be a therapist. Now, am I using MDMA for therapy all the time? No. Would I suggest everybody use it for therapy? No, right? It, it, it's not that kind of way. Right. I, I think it's a, a wonderful, very safe substance, but in no way do I think it just applies to every context. Mm -hmm. Right. But without that young exploration or that rite of passage of hanging out in a, at a rave with friends at 19, would I have ended up on the same path? Maybe not. And I actually am a little devastated just to think of all of the different things that have, have, have taken place because of those choices, right? So that was a rite of passage to me, and it absolutely contributed to who I am today. And I don't know if it's a good person or not, but I think that if I had not been exposed to those and I had stayed just only exposed to, like, alcohol, like I said, biological father was an alcoholic, killed himself, right? Who knows how that would have played mm -hmm. out for me? Like I knew at a young age that uh, when I, after I first started going to the bars at 21, that alcohol was not a good drug for me. Blacked out drunk, like bad decisions just across the board and really quickly kind of said like, oh, no, I don't like that alcohol mind state. I actually like the cannabis mind state more. And at that time was even like, man, I wish I could just like smoke some pot and go to the bar with my friends instead of like having to like drink and catch up with them and go out. Right. And so it was this weird thing of like, oh, well, then I just went with the crowd. And that led to, you know, several years of just abuse, uh, abusing alcohol. So anyway, I, I, yeah. I'm beating around no, it. But. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's funny because um, you you, uh, you triggered something for me. What, what you said in the last episode was, you know, I, I tried to kind of open this door about maybe what are some of the benefits of these substances? And your initial response was that it's really um, an individual experience. And and I think you're you're really right on that because what I, what it strikes me um, is that for me personally, discovering psychedelics, like understanding that there was this other realm out there, 
And as a, as a kid, my mind was, you know, so active. It still is, but I, I just was so spun up and I saw that as an avenue to like, finally just tear down that wall and just see what would, what would come out. And I thought that in my, you know, first time trying LSD, my first time, uh, you know, out in the desert, you know, by myself, I would go out there and take these substances with me because I really thought I had this work to do. I, I, I had seen a glimpse and I needed to like tear down this wall and see what it was all about. Like that's not everyone's experience. Not everyone needs to do that. And in talking with some of my friends about this topic, it's like, you know, and, and what you just said about um, MDMA therapy, like it's not that anyone is saying everyone needs to do this. It's saying that there are uses for different people. It's really helpful for people that have dealt with trauma. And if you're a, an overthinking, you know, teenage kid, having a mushroom trip can really set something straight in your head. I know it did for me. I went out to the desert thinking that I was going to lose my shit, see dragons, you know, ascend to this like space of just demonic, you know, potential. And I just found myself in this amazing landscape with all of these things growing around me. And, you know, I, and I had a better sense of like, okay, like this is who I am and this is okay. And so for me, like the therapeutic benefit of that is just staggering. Like I came back from those initial trips completely changed in my, in my outlook. And I think it took me off of kind of a path of self-destruction thinking that I was crazy and put me on a new track of like exploring this uh, tendency in humans to use this in religious ceremonies. And, and you know, it's... But, but what's kind of cool, what I'm realizing in, in talking to you is that, you know, I might want that for more people in my life. You know, I, I've, I've, I've brought that to, a, you know, a number of people and have had these really amazing, um, you know, bonding experiences and worked through personal challenges with people. And I just see like the ability for that to take us out of our normal context, you know, put us in this different plane of awareness and give us some new tools or some new ways to get your brain working. Um, but it's not to say that everybody needs that, wants that. Uh, and actually what, what kind of struck the chord that I wanted to touch on was when you're talking about going to the bars and we say like, you know, functioning adults can use alcohol and functioning adults, you know, might even be able to integrate, you know, heroin that, that term functional, uh, in the, in a conversation I had with a friend, it's like, is that really our standard? Like that we can just function that we could just, you know, get up, go to the bathroom, eat, go to work. Like, is that really all that's required of us? And yeah. From the capitalist be, system, yeah. From the capitalist system, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you could be a functional adult, get blacked out drunk and, you know, go to work the next day. But, you know. That oh, yeah. Even beat your kids and end up in a drunk tank for a day and a half and still go to work on Monday. <laughs> Right. So, okay, functional, but is that really the bar? And, you know, my my interest, my bias that I'm bringing in this conversation is this bias that there is this realm of substances that can take you from just that functioning. And even if it's just for an afternoon or just, you know, I like to think of it like punctuation. Our lives are these run on sentences and then you can go out in the in the hills and eat some mushrooms and have this this fundamentally different experience that isn't functioning. It's, it's, it's elevating. It's, um, and this is just for me, like personal, like I can then like put all these pieces together. I can take stock of my relationships and what's important, what's not. I can integrate things in new ways and I can come back down out of the hills with just like a new, um, approach. So it's not about functioning. It's about like 
potential and, and being the best that I can be, not because I want to win a prize, but because for me, I'm happier, I'm healthier, I'm doing the things that I care about, I'm, I'm maintaining relationships. And so that's where, you know, in all this conversation, it's interesting because we kind of made this this giant swimming pool or this ocean of potential, all these different substances. And, you know, for me, there's this one little raft of, of benefit for me, which is like these psychedelics. For someone else, it might be, you know, um, they, they have a lot of pain that they actually physically have to deal with. And there might be, you know, cannabis or other things like that's what they need. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of working through a little personal revelation here that my soapbox about these particular chemicals and their ability to change our minds is just one little possibility in a much wider realm of what yeah. people can get. Well, yeah, yeah. We didn't, we didn't remove alcohol prohibition so that adults could get back to functioning, right? Like that, was, that wasn't it at all, right? Like adults, humans uh, in our culture said, hey, no, we use alcohol actually to access our humanity, right? Sometimes mm. accessing that humanity is to celebrate. We like to drink at weddings. We like to drink at uh, job promotions or retirements, right? Like it is a celebratory thing. So it connects to our humanness there. But we also use alcohol to our, connect our humanness when we grieve, right? And so there's a full spectrum of how we use this substance to connect to our humanness. Was alcohol about making sure all adults could use alcohol? No. It was making sure that adults who wanted to use it for those reasons could when they wanted to. And they knew that the alcohol they were getting had actually been distilled in ways that it was okay for them to consume, right? And so if we look at all of these other substances, it's the same thing. It's just like, oh, okay, well, sometimes humans use uh, opiates to connect to <clears throat> those places in us that want to, to feel soothed or refreshed, pain-free, right? Like, well, why do we prohibit people from connecting to that sense of their humanness, right? Like, it's just, it, it, it's, it's just interesting. And no, it's like removing these substances is not because we believe everybody should do them, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that LSD is for everybody, right? I, I do know that there is a subset of folks that I've met throughout my life that find great benefits. Right. So one friend said, oh, I had tried out antidepressants for like seven or eight years. This, and it was just this roller coaster ride. None of them ever worked. Finally uh, stopped them, got off of that. You know, like detoxing off of them was terrible, too. But it was about, you know, a couple months later, decided, no, I want to go out in the d desert and do some LSD and found that going out in the desert once every so often and doing some LSD generated better antidepressant effects than all of the drugs he had been prescribed. So are all those antidepressants bad? No, there are some folks who take those and, and, and they are alleviated of, of, of distressful things in their lives, right? Like they get to come out from under things, emotions or these things that they haven't been able to. But are they for everybody? No. So what we're really talking about here is just making other options available, right? Like uh, does EMDR, eye, eye movement desensitization, desensitization, I forgot what the R is, anyway, uh, work for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, there are some folks who see benefit from that in working with their PTSD. Does it work for everybody? No, it doesn't, right? Some folks don't respond to that. So why 
then would we prohibit other options, right? If MDMA turns out, oh, this is another good option and it has helped another subset of folks cope with these things in life, we just say they shouldn't have access, right? Like, there's a strange contradiction right now in the United States, 2018, uh, Trump signed into law the Federal Right to Try Act. This allows for those with a terminal illness the right to try drugs that have passed phase one clinical studies. And phase one is just the safety test, right? This is where they mm -hmm. determine if it's safe enough for folks to test. So at the federal level, this was first passed too by a bill sponsored here in Colorado in 2014, sponsored by Joanne Janal and a few other folks, I forget. Um, but so 2014 was when this came on the scene. And then 2018, it's at the federal level. But nobody recognizes that actually anyone that has that designation of a terminal illness and is headed towards dying now can seek out the right to try an investigational substance like DMT, right? Uh, MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, right? Like these things have all passed the phase one clinical trials. So they're actually mm. available to folks who are dying. And we say, oh, well, that's because these people are dying. They should have access if these things are going to be of benefit, and they have been, right? Like, like the psilocybin trials at Johns Hopkins with people who are dying, it's amazing the stories that come from this, right? And even if it was only like 80 out of 100 people experience these kinds, kind of positive benefits, why would we ever deny those 80 people this drug? It's just, you know, and so we have to really break this down and say like, oh, okay, well, if we're going to open it up and just say, oh, people can do drugs, uh, any drug they want almost, uh, but only if they're dying. Why is that the delineation? Why do you have to be at the last rite of passage, the final rite of passage of death, to then get to do any drug you want? It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> We're all dying, right? Sylvia oh, yeah, yeah. Tibetan philosophy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's wild, too, because you do you do hear these stories of, you know, the, the trip reports from Strassman's work or even... Um, you know, people that are maybe 55 years old have smoked two packs of cigarettes a day their entire life. They try psilocybin and then the next day they quit, you know, and it's like, well, we thought there were all of these, you know, physiological reasons why that addiction was there. And then this substance had the ability to, I don't know, whatever it, whatever it rewired in the brain. Um, and that, to, and that to me, honestly, is, is like the most tantalizing aspect of all this is that there's so much that we don't know about how our our brains work and yeah if you can rewire someone on their deathbed bed to not be afraid of death anymore like that's that's great but what if you could do that when you're you know 20 years old and now you're you're living your life in just appreciation for every moment that you have because you you know you you've, you've rewired that fear response or i don't know it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah well, and it's, it's, it's wild, too. I, I appreciate you bringing that up because, like, we do get quick to jump on to all of the tales that we hear of, like, oh, the person who did heroin got hooked and then they were stealing mom's jewelry. Or, you know, like, all of these, like, we, we, get, we get set on those. But one of the more common things that people experience with drug use is spontaneous secession. Hmm. Most drug users spontaneously stop using the drugs that they use. Right. Like I was told as a young kid, oh, if I ever smoked pot, I would just be done. I would like I would be an addict forever. Well, no, I've definitely gone through major periods of life where I didn't smoke pot. Right now is not one of them. It's, it's legal for us. And I smoke pot. It's all good. But like 
the spontaneous stopping of these things, right? Like using ecstasy when I was a young kid, right? Like they told me, oh, 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 you get hooked on that ecstasy. Oh, oh, next it's going to be meth, then it's going to be losing your teeth, and then it's jail, kid. Well, no. One day I was like, oh, I don't appreciate the relationships I'm in, the folks I'm hanging out with and spending this much money on Well, I guess I'm not doing that this weekend or the next weekend. And it, and it just stretched. And I didn't do I, I, the, the window after I stopped when I was like, 22 for MDMA was probably like eight years, right? But they said, oh, no, you're going to be hooked. You're going to need it. I didn't need it. I just stopped. I just, didn't, I just didn't take it anymore, right? And so that is actually more common, right, than the folks who do it one time and get hooked forever. But we, we, we perpetuate this myth as if they are so dangerous. And it's like, well, no, why don't we talk about these stories more, right? Or, you know, the, you know, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, that was yeah. like in working with the, so my dissertation project that I did for uh, my research was actually in, um, I, I did interviews with adult couples that use MDMA recreationally. What was, what was fun was going through and coding those interviews. Like alcohol, when people talked about alcohol, it was typically about how detrimental and destroying it was to their life. <laughs> and so that was just like, the tone that it caught out of the coding and and then the, uh, the way they talked about these other drugs right and so then they're talking about um mdma and they're like oh it's uh like bliss in a pill <laughs> right and so it was funny these drug users who you know are supposed to be this subset of, of of people that you know don't do well at work or jobs or you know all these things they have all these assumptions about drug users Yet here they were talking about, oh, no, me and my partner every couple of months like to take MDMA together as a recharge to our relationship, a little check in with the universe, clear things up, mm -hmm. get current. Um, and then they go out and do all of the things, right? Like, they are just like upstanding adults. Um, but it was wild how much they would talk about psychedelics being these positive transformations, even the times when they were like, oh, I only did LSD once. It was really scary. I never did it again. And it transformed my lives in these ways. Anyway, I think that we need to talk about those that more. Yeah, and you know, it was interesting because after our first conversation, I feel like again this this analogy of a shoebox with my little concepts all neatly arranged, and then it just got like blown into the space where now I'm like kind of having to put things back together because we do do this. We whether we want to think about it or good or bad or whatever, like we still have these categories. And case in point, um, it was a couple nights ago. Uh, we were out here in the garage, you know, it's got the climbing wall. We've got a big sound system out here. So the kids, you know, every day we're out here bouncing around and, and dancing. And we were listening to like rave music and we got on the topic, my son and I, my son is nine. Um, he's very observant. I'm sure he's seen me editing these things and he saw the names and, and he asked me, um, you know, what are drugs? And so I'm like, boom, like all of a sudden we've been talking about this and now here I am, you know, the door is open. I'm going to be the parent. And what do I say now? You know, I've, I've I had a concept and now it's all kind of I'm kind of putting the pieces back together. And so I, I, I explained to him, you know, in my understanding, a, a drug is any substance that affects our bodies in some way. And that that's a very broad uh, set of things. For example, right now, my daughter has really chapped dry skin on her hands because they're putting lotion on them and, you know, uh, sanitizer lotion. Yeah. You know, so she's got all this chaps. So we're, you know, we're putting uh, cortisone on her hand and it's like, you know, that's a drug that, you know, uh, decreases inflammation and, you know, that goes in your skin. There's other drugs like 
alcohol and cannabis that change the way you feel and change, you know, how you experience things. And he, he asked, are there bad drugs? And I'm like, oh, shit, here we go, because we just had this talk about good drug and bad drug. And I said, well, anything can be a bad drug if you if you take too much of it or you are doing it in ways that aren't safe. And he's like, so, so what's a bad drug? And I'm like, you know, there's drugs that cause a lot of problems for people. And, you know, the, the, the amount that you need to take before it, it you know, can harm you is lower. And he's like, what? I'm like, oh, like, you know, crystal meth. This is something that people make out of like car battery acid and cleaning chemicals in their basements and they smoke it. And it can be really bad for their bodies. It might make them feel really good for a short period of time, but it's really bad for their bodies. And he's there, you know, in front of the computer. So he types in crystal meth. And then here's, you know, all these pictures of the, the substance. I mean, this is the, the world we're living in. You know, kids have instant access to everything. They, they have a question. And then there were like all the before and after pictures that you see. Just like if you type crystal meth, you're going to see as much the substance as the, the users. And I don't know. I don't know if that was like a good parenting moment. I know that he was really disturbed by those images. And that was his takeaway. And I think that's like a good thing. It's kind of in the vein, like we can talk about everything and this stuff is out there like you know but you know here's pictures of people that that do it so like make your own choice um but it was just interesting because uh my point is as parents and as a culture we tend to cling on to these really nice packages of you know drugs mm. are bad or cannabis and alcohol are okay but everything else is you know horrible and it's going to kill you and so maybe as a kind of a, a last talking point I understand that you have a wider view of drugs, but how would you have answered that question to someone who's just coming into this space in like simple terms that are concrete enough to kind of grasp, you know, maybe taking your, your whole view and attempting to just kind of put it into some kind of a box that, you know, listeners and, and myself could just kind of see how you've integrated these different pieces. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like my my first piece of advice for parents would be take a deep breath, <laughs> slow down, slow down so that you don't fall into the trap of lying, right? Because like uh, the, you're going to do more harm lying to the kiddo because like you said, like, like two minutes later could be on Google finding out anyway, right? And not, not only are they going to see stories of like people's teeth falling out and stuff, but they could also go to bluelight.org and find stories of people saying like, yeah, and I pursued reading the Bible on meth because it's such a spiritual drug, you know, or whatever. But so there's a, there's a spectrum of it. But yeah, that first step is just, just don't lie to your kiddo. Slow it down. Take a deep breath. If you need to say, hey, I would love to have this conversation about drugs, but maybe not right now because I want to formulate my best thoughts. You know, it's OK, but take your time. But yeah, start there. And I think you did good, right? Like just not lying to your kiddo. And also finding ways to help empower them. Empowerment is going to work way better than fear. It works way better than shame, right? Like you find out, you know, here in a couple of years, your kid tried pot for the first time. Well, don't shame them. <laughs> Try and figure out the angle of how they felt empowered in making that decision and then sort out whether they felt like it was a good decision or a bad decision and why. Help them feel more empowered and they'll do better off with those decisions in the future. But you lie to them, they are going to make the, they're going to go to the contradiction to the decision you want them to make, right? And so <clears throat> that is the, the, the big piece. 
especially when we stop lying to, to ourselves about drugs and to our kids about drugs. So I think you did great. Uh, I think that, you know, the other piece, I mean, I'm, I'm really struck. There's this piece about the Controlled Substances Act that I'm, I'm just really critical of the Schedule One classification. And so, you know, if we look at, let's say, psilocybin, uh, I think it was 2017, received breakthrough status from the FDA. This is a pretty big deal. They actually gave breakthrough status as a treatment. Huh. Now, that's in direct contradiction to the Schedule One classification. The Schedule One classification, of course, says high instance of abuse, no known medical use. Well, what's wild is it took 30-some years to come up with a medical use for psilocybin because prohibition made it so hard to study, right? Because you couldn't have access, it was so many hoops to jump through to study a Schedule One substance that it took that long. It took 30, 35 years for Rick Doblin and his team over there at Mass to do the same thing with MDMA. It got breakthrough status. Well, we need to, we need to break down this contradiction then. Like if a Schedule One classification says, oh, no known medical use, well, science doesn't work that way. Science says, oh, well, there could be a use. We actually need to have some access so that we can test that and we can test the variables related to it to figure it out, right? Cocaine remained Schedule II classification. It also got to stay on the forefront of medical discoveries, right? Mm. Uh, my mom, uh, she, uh, for most of my life when I was a young kid, wore glasses. Um, when I forget what it was now, but she had the opportunity to do LASIK, right? And so LASIK is this wonderful advancement in technology. We go in, reshape your cornea, get the get everything, and people can regain eyesight they didn't have, right? And prolong that into their life of, of having better eyes. Well, one of the things that coincided with this medical advancement was using cocaine as a stimulant for the eye. They use cocaine in LASIK. They will put drops of cocaine in your eye because it helps it stay still. They use cocaine in LASIK surgery, among other things. I mean, it can actually be used for different things, but the reason it got to you know, become a part of that fantastic medical procedure is because it didn't have the Schedule One classification. Researchers could still get access to it, and someone doing eye surgery was like, hey, I wonder if a stimulant would work. Let's try some cocaine. And there you go. You have this wonderful advancement. And so that actually happened pretty quick advancements in using psilocybin for end-of-life care or MDMA for treating post-traumatic stress disorder with veterans, with police officers, with rape victims, took 35 years to come up and be like, oh yeah, no, this is a thing. We got to get rid of that Schedule One classification. It just does not make any sense. Why would we remove scientists from the equation, right? Especially when we have this like, and, and cocaine, it gets the, you know, it's like one of the bad ones. And we still see this like wonderful medical benefit. And so it just kind of comes down to like, you know, is it a good drug, bad drug? Well, it depends. Do you need LASIK or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's funny because I, I, I tend to ask a question, I hear your response, and then I put that together and I try to almost restate for myself, like my, my question and in, you know, being a parent, talking to kids, being a culture, talking to ourselves, your advice was to not lie, right? And that, and that is so important. Like we can't have a conversation. We can't have trust and empathy and go on the um, discovery together when we're lying. 
it strikes me that lying is based on information and what might feel to a parent like the right thing to do, the right truth to them, maybe just because that's how they were brought up. They were told this is the truth. Cocaine is bad. You know, drugs are bad. Like that's the truth. Um, it's hard to act from a place of truthfulness when truth requires truth seeking and an, an expanding of that information to your point, like slow down, like make sure you have a good um, message before you just start talking and maybe parroting some of the things that you had already heard. And so it strikes me that exactly what we're doing and presumably the people you know listening to us, uh, it, it, it opens up that ability to see a bigger picture. And now when that question gets asked, there's a new truth or I, th I don't think parents ever maliciously keep things from their kids. I think it's usually out of the, uh, out of a, a, an attempt to be, you know, keep them safe. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate that, that realization that my neighbor next door might have kids and they might be outright lying to those kids about drugs, but it's not because they're bad or they're doing something wrong. It's because we have this underground, the knowledge is not readily accessible and parents have no choice because, you know, most people are going to work, they're doing whatever, they're going to church and they're, you know, getting their information. And when, when the question gets asked, they, they do their best. So, um, yeah, but the fact that we are having this conversation, that people are listening, that there's dialogue around these things that are really uncomfortable for people to talk about, I think is a, hopefully a step in that direction. And it looks like you know, the laws are headed there. There's other, um, you know, communities and, and, and countries on the planet that are a few steps ahead. So I know that you have a very critical lens about where we are today and how we got there. Do you have optimism looking forward or what keeps you up at night, you know, concerning these topics? Hmm. Well, it's like, always that idea that the door could snap shut at any moment, right? Like it's, it's absolutely wonderful to be a part of a phase three study working with MDMA and, the, and these folks using it to, to get through these things. And that could be snatched away so quick, even with all of the evidence of its benefit, it, it, it could just be closed. And so that is just the truth. We live in a, we live in a system that could close these doors that we've worked so hard to open just as quickly. I think that cannabis has has really driven a wedge into this that now we've had to like we've had to be more critical about it right like is it a medicine or is it just something that adults can do right and it's like well both actually and so you can't just package it as one or the other without really having a critical com conversation and so i think that's the trap some parents get into as well is <clears throat> omission for efficiency right like just you don't have that conversation on cannabis being maybe a medicine, maybe just a drug for fun because it's tough. Right. And so you don't to be more efficient. You're just like, no, drugs are bad. Don't smoke pot. <laughs> it's just like super efficient. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so paying attention to that and like uh, just recognizing that that efficiency can have a lot of its like consequences. Um, I also, the, another thing that really sticks in uh, like when I hear it, uh, you know, you hear folks talking about like, oh, uh, ayahuasca, everybody should do ayahuasca or everybody should do MDMA. Everybody should do this thing like the, uh, the, the, the um, going towards these 
things as if everybody should do them. I'm like, no, that's just not true at all, right? Like with the MDMA therapy, it's only 80% effective, right? Like that, 80 to 85% effective, right? That's, that's wonderful. That means for 80%, 80 people out of 100 did a good job. That still means that there's 20% of people that went home and still had debilitating symptoms of post-traumatic stress, right? Had, had nervous systems that were hypervigilant, couldn't, couldn't get jobs or regular work because they can't be around people, right? Or, you know, like, and so that's just the, the truth as well. These are not magic bullets. They do not cure things, right? Like they, they may help expose people to things that then they can grow from, but in no way are these the answer. But so yeah, that that like definitely sticks with me when I hear people out there just like, oh, the world the world just needs DMT. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I, I I wish it were so simple. <laughs> totally, I just love that um, we are at a time and place where we we can critically think through it. I'm I'm appreciative of that because I don't think that's always been the case. So more than anything, I, I want to thank you for this talk because I thought that I had a. Uh, a solid ground to stand on as far as my thinking in a lot of this. And I really enjoy that I too have been absolutely challenged in my preconceptions and that I'm now able to put these pieces together in newer, more functional ways. Yeah. And that's what we got, right? Like that's all, that's all we got. Um, break it apart, put it back together the next day <laughs> in a new and exciting, exciting way. <laughs> Oh, that was uh, one thing I wanted to leave with too. Is like I, I, I really do think that people um, benefit from focusing on being the expert of their own experience, and so within that, also really having these like engaged and open conversations with their drug dealer. And when I say drug dealer, I mean your doctor and your psychiatrist, the ones who are prescribing and giving you drugs. You are the expert of your own experience. If you have been prescribed antidepressants for the past 12 years and you're still depressed, they're not working. You need to be the expert of that and tell your doctor, hey, these may not be working. Can we figure out another way? They are not the expert. They don't know what goes on inside your body. It's the same thing with these other drugs. We've got to be a, a, the expert of our own experience on that and have healthy conversations with our drug dealers. If it is a street dealer, like build that up so that you know what kind of drugs you're getting or whether they've been cut. Right? Like it's a harm reduction strategy, but it is to, to bring that into the Western medical model too and just say, hey, we have entrusted doctors and physicians with prescription privileges and their track record is not great. We ended up with an opioid crisis. We ended up with, uh, you know, antidepressants and benzodiazepine crisis. I mean, we're, we're, we're ending up with these crises out of the drug dealers that we trusted, right? They just happen to be doctors, but you know that nobody's perfect and so we have to return that knowledge base back to the people we are the we are the best source of information when it comes to is this drug good or bad well when you take it what happens <laughs> does it get rid of your depression okay it might be good does it make it worse it might be bad but um to kind of like bring it back into that because the system they're they're not experts on it right they don't know if psilocybin is going to be medical useful or not so we have to like do our own work and determine that. So one of the things that came up recently was a return to book clubs. I actually haven't been a part of a book club for a long time, but this, uh, this book by Dr. Carl Hart, 
uh, Drug Use for Grownups, I suggest y'all get the book. Form a little book club with your friends and talk about it, right? Like this podcast is kind of one directional. You're just going to be hearing me, hearing Ryan. And <laughs> if you want to engage, have a book club with your friends. Have, have, have a club with your other parents, right? Like get together with the other parents and like, hey, how are you talking to your kids about drugs? Because they're starting to ask me and I don't know what to say. It's okay. Like engage these together. We're going to get through it. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big fan of that because we do need to start to change the public perception. So yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you again so much for taking the time out of your out of your schedule. This was uh, great, I think. And I, I know a lot of people are listening along with us and going on this journey. And I think it's a it's a good one to have. So, uh, yeah, I think we can probably wrap it up there. Cool. Yeah, cool. have a good one. All right. Cheers. Thank you all so much for listening today. I have really enjoyed this time with Rob, and it never ceases to amaze me how much our rutted worldview can change just by hearing the ideas of others and maybe stepping beyond our comfort zones from time to time. If you would like to get involved and maybe even help to push some of these cultural changes forward, you can visit the NoWACSociety.org to learn more or donate to support the Right to Try Psilocybin Advocacy Fund, Consciousness Raising Education and Peer Support, and other ongoing initiatives. Also, we love getting feedback on these episodes, so if you have thoughts or opinions, please head over to uncomplication.com and leave a comment. As Rob said, a podcast is one-directional, but taking the conversation out into the open is what we're all about. So share your perspectives, start a conversation with your friends and family, and if you are enjoying the Uncomplication podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with them too. You can also leave us a five-star review on the iTunes store if you are enjoying our efforts here. It really helps us get found by more listeners. So stay tuned. There will be a lot more interviews, rabbit holes, and some fun surprises coming your way in the weeks ahead. And remember, Uncomplication is a state of mind. We are all right where we need to be. Cheers. Now, uh, as your counselor, I'm here to tell you about drugs and alcohol and why they're bad, okay? So, first of all, uh, smoking's bad. You shouldn't smoke. And uh, alcohol is bad. You shouldn't drink alcohol. And uh, as for drugs, well, drugs are bad. You shouldn't do drugs. Okay, that about wraps up my introduction. Now, uh, are there any questions?